Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Well, good morning. How are you? Good. Beautiful summer day out there today, huh? Yeah. Yay, June. Here we go. Hey, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak, and I get the privilege of teaching today. So if you could do me a couple of favors in those programs you got, there should be some message notes. Those will help you follow along. And if you have your Bibles, get those out. Open them up to the book of James. We have been in the book of James now as our series for the last several months, and we got a little ways to go before we complete it. But if you're brand new to Rocky Peak, I want to welcome you and just kind of bring you up to speed as we've been in this series. We've been taking a look at James's letter to the first Christians, and this is probably one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. And James was Jesus's younger brother, his half-brother. And so when you read James's words, you read the things that he's telling the first Christians about, you hear so much of his older brother's voice echoing through in his teachings. And so today, as we continue to look in James, we're going to hear more of what Jesus has to say. We're actually going to spend some time in James and then jump to one of Jesus' more famous teachings to help us understand what James is pointing at in his letter. But that's where we're at. That's where we're going. That's what we're up to. So if you have your Bibles open to James 4, let's get ready to jump in. And if you would do me a favor, would you pray with me as we get started? Well, Father, we come together asking for your help today, asking that you would be amongst us, that your spirit would just be powerfully moving in our lives, God, as we look into your word, as we look at the things that were written to the first Christians so long ago, would you reveal to us the things we need to understand in our lives today as your followers, what it means to belong to you, what it means to live for you. And so today, if we need to be convicted, would we be convicted? If we need to be encouraged, would we be encouraged? But Lord, above all, would you have your way with us as we look in your word, as you lead us into life that your son set us free to give. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, well, James is going to point out something that the first Christians were doing that wasn't good. And we're going to pay attention to what he has to say today because it has significant implications for our lives. If we don't catch what James is saying here and ultimately what we're going to see Jesus is talking about, it will do great damage to our relationships with one another and also to our walk with God. So let's jump into James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. That's what we're going to be looking at. Two verses, but a lot to unpack. So James starts in verse 11 of chapter 4. He says, brothers, do not slander one another. And so he comes out charging, confronting them on something that they were doing. Slander is basically this. Speaking against someone in order to tear them down. So did you do that this week at all? Anyone? Nervous laughter? Ha 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 ha. Right? Yeah. Anyone? Anyone? Did you throw anyone under the bus this week with the words you used? You know, maybe at the proverbial water cooler at work, like, oh, so-and-so is such a such-and-such, right? Or uh, you're out with your friends having lunch, and somebody comes up, and you guys just start ripping them apart. Or maybe you just made a nice little post on Facebook this week, just letting the whole web know what you think about someone. Yeah, that's slander, and that's what James is saying, don't do. Uh, it's interesting because we all wrestle with this to one degree or another. It's hard because it's so easy, isn't it? And, and here's a couple reasons why we slander. I don't know if this is why you've slandered, but this is definitely why I've slandered in my own journey. One of the reasons why we slander is because we're significantly insecure as people. And one of the ways that I make myself feel good, one of the ways that I lift myself up is by pushing others down. And so if I can tear you apart and let everyone know how stupid you are, it makes me feel good about myself. Have you ever done that? You can be honest, right, if you've done that. 
You guys are wait, we're way too quiet this morning. Everyone just, it's okay to interact if I ask you a question. Even if you're like, I don't want to admit that I did that. Hey, if you, you're here because you're a sinner in need of Jesus, all right? So we can be honest that we have issues, right? All right. Have you ever done that? Yes, okay. Here's another reason why we slander. Petty vengeance. I want to hurt them the way that they hurt me. You know, so maybe it's that person who has just done great damage to you emotionally or even physically or done something that's harmed you and you want to lash back and you want to hurt them so you let everyone know just what kind of person they are. You know what's interesting about that is that we feel like we're not really doing something wrong because when I throw you under the bus with my words, I can just step back and say, well, I didn't do anything to you. And yet what I've done is just maligned your character as a person. And I've done great damage to you. But those are a couple reasons why we slander. And what James wants us to understand is that this is a big deal. Significant implications for our walk with God. Because let's go back into what he says. He says, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. And what James wants us to understand is that the presenting issue of slander actually reveals a much darker issue going on in our relationships with one another. That when we use our words to speak about someone or against someone, we're not simply just slandering them, we're actually judging them. And we're acting like we're God in their life by letting everyone know where we think they're at. But not only are we judging them, did you catch what James just said here? We're not only speaking against them, we're actually speaking against God's law and judging it as if somehow we know better than God. And so now we say, well, what law, James? What law are you referring to? Well, if you were here in the series, if you remember back in James chapter 2 when he was confronting the first Christians about the the way they were showing favoritism in the church, so they were giving special treatment to the rich and the poor, they were saying, sit over here in the cheap seats. They were doing this sort of thing in their meetings. And James says, look, you're not fulfilling the royal law found in Scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so, James, which law are we judging when we slander one another? Well, that's the law he's referring to, the royal law. And the reason why in chapter 2 James called this the royal law is because this is what his older brother, Jesus, said was part of the greatest commandment. If you read in Matthew 22, the religious leaders come up to Jesus one day And they want to stump him. They want to test him. So they ask him a question. Hey, Jesus, of all the commandments in the law, which is the greatest? Now, it's an interesting thing when you're trying to test the creator of the universe, the one who is the source of all truth and goodness and beauty. You can't really stump him. So they ask him this question, and he doesn't miss a beat. He knows the answer right off the bat. He says, this is the greatest of all the commandments in God's law. Love God with everything you are with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they ask him for one, and he gives them two. Because for Jesus, these two are so closely connected that you cannot do one without doing the other. In fact, one of his first followers, John, writes in 1 John 4, that if you say you love God, but you do not love your brother, you are a liar. So significant, what James is pointing out here. And what he is saying is that when you're slandering your brother or your sister in Christ, 
you're judging them, you're condemning them, but you're not just speaking against them, you're actually speaking against God's law and you're judging it. And he says, that's not good. Look at what he goes on to say about this. The last part of verse 11, he goes, when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. As if to say, this law is stupid and does not apply to me. And have you ever come across a law that you found to be annoying or unnecessary or somewhat trivial? How about this? Have you ever been driving late at night and you come up to that red light and you're sitting there in the middle of the night and all you want to do is get home and there's no other cars around and you're wondering, does this one really apply to me? Have you ever been there? Remember what I said about being honest? Yeah, okay, yeah. Here's a hot tip though. I did that once. Here's my hot tip to you. Make sure the car behind you waiting at the red light is not a police car. (laughs) Because in that moment when I decided that I was above the law and that this law was stupid and I judged it and I just drove through so I could get home, Johnny Law had another word for me in that moment. So I see the lights come on and he thought differently than what I did about the law. (laughs) And yet what James is saying is that when we slander one another, when we judge one another, We're actually judging God's law, and we're doing the same thing. We're saying that I'm above this, and Jesus, when you say that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, that's stupid, and that does not apply to me. I'm above the law. In fact, Jesus, why don't you just move over? I'm going to take that role upon myself. I'll be the judge on this one. Okay, do you think that might do some damage in your walk with God? Now let me ask you a question. When you were throwing that person under the bus this week, let's just assume you were, did you think you were doing that? Did you stop and say, you know what, I'm going to be God right now. Jesus, scoot over. I mean, I think if we stopped and thought about that, we might have thought twice about throwing that person under the bus. And yet we do it all the time so callously, so easily. And what James wants to understand is, do you understand how dangerous this is? How destructive this is, not just in your relationships with other people, but in your walk with God. And so that we don't miss the point of what we're doing, he goes on in verse 12 and he says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Guess who that's not? (laughs) That's not you. That's not me. That's God. But whenever we step into the place of slandering one another, we start judging one another, we're basically usurping God's role in that person's life. Which is why James asked this great question, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? You ever had someone call you out? James is calling us out this morning as we look at what he says here. And uh, this is a great question to wrestle with. Because it's a question that forces us to ask ourselves, am I taking God's role in someone else's life the way I speak about them? And this is an excellent question to wrestle with. And later on in our time together, we're going to come back and wrestle with this question. But what I want to do right now is focus in on this idea of judging that James is bringing up. Because in this question that he asks, who are you to judge your neighbor? You hear his older brother's teaching echoing through in this question. 
You hear the words of Jesus coming through because James knew what his brother taught about how we were called to live. And Jesus said something very famous about judging in Matthew 7, verse 1. It's arguably one of the most popular sayings of Jesus. Have you heard it? Do not judge or you will be judged. Yeah. So what I want to do is jump out of James for a minute, spend some time looking at what Jesus said, because that's going to even give us more background to understand what James is talking about. And so if you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Flip to the left until you hit the red letters, and then keep going to the first one. Matthew 7, 1. These words of Jesus here are very popular You'll hear them quoted often in our culture. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard someone, when being confronted on an issue in their life, throw these words out? Hey, don't judge me, right? Have you ever done that? Come on, we're being honest this morning. A few of you, yeah, all right. You guys are getting less and less honest, all right. This is going in the opposite direction it should be. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. And yet if we want to understand what Jesus is talking about, we need to understand not only what he means by these words, but we also need to understand what he does not mean by these words. Because otherwise, we're going to get this wrong and not do what we need to do in our lives with one another and make the mistake of hurting one another. And so let's start with the obvious. What does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge or you will be judged? Simply this, don't condemn people. That's not your role. That's not your call. You're not God. It's not you to go to someone and say, hey, you're bad, you're beyond grace, you have no hope. That's not your job. So we're not supposed to do that. That's why James says in verse 11, there's only one lawgiver and judge. That's not you. That's not me. That's him. But in order to really get the whole implications of how to judge and how not to judge, we need to also understand what Jesus does not mean when he says, do not judge. And so what Jesus does not mean is this. When he says do not judge, he's not saying do not confront sin in somebody's life. And yet in our culture today, that's what we think he means. And so when somebody's called out on something, they so often throw out these words of Jesus, right? And if they're feeling especially holy and self-righteous, they'll quote him in the King James because it sounds more profound, right? Judge not, lest someone, don't judge, right? And they'll just throw them out. And yet here's what we need to understand. Jesus does not mean do not confront sin in someone's life when he says do not judge. He means don't condemn the person. And let me give you a couple reasons why we can know that Jesus doesn't mean do not confront sin or do not confront the wrong in a person's life. Because if that's what Jesus meant when he said do not judge, then he would be in contradiction of his own teaching. So if you go forward in the book of Matthew to Matthew chapter 18 and you read in verse 15, Jesus is giving guidelines on what to do when someone sins against you. And this is what he says in Matthew 18 verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Now he doesn't say go and tear him a new one or go and condemn him. He says, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And so we're obviously supposed to make some kind of judgment between right and wrong and be able to call someone out for when they do wrong. 
So he can't mean don't confront sin, otherwise he's contradicting his own teaching. Here's another reason why he can't mean don't confront sin when he says don't judge. It would create a logical, self-refuting cycle. Here's what I mean. Let's say you did something wrong. Try to imagine that, all right? (laughs) So you've done something wrong, and I come to you, and I'm going to confront you on it. So I don't know, pick your poison, whatever you're doing. It's obviously something wrong that as a follower of Christ, we should not, you should not be doing that. And so I come to you, and I say, hey, friend, what are you doing? This is wrong. And you come back to me with these words and you invoke the holy words of Jesus. And you say, don't judge me. And then I would say, wait, hold on. If by don't judge me, do you mean don't call out wrong in someone's life? Yes. So are you saying it's wrong for me to confront the wrong in you? Yes. Question mark. Well, then don't judge me for judging you. <laughs> Wait a second. Hold on. I'm confused. I need, an or- I need a chart because now I feel like we can't even invoke the sacred words of Jesus because then we're both by, right? See how it wouldn't even make sense if that's what he meant? What Jesus means is don't condemn the person. As you learn how to confront the sin in someone's life, you got to learn how to do that without condemning the person. And let me tell you, I am someone who is in desperate need of people who are willing to confront the issues in my life. I don't know about you, but you've been honest enough that I think you need it too. And so we need to distinguish between two types of judging if we're going to really understand Jesus' teaching here. And here's the two types of judging. Very simply, this is a definition of bad judging, what Jesus is saying not to do. Bad judging is this, condemning the person. There you go. Don't do that. But good judging, the kind of judging that we all need as we do life together is this. Confronting the sin. And for you and I, as we learn to do life together, that's what we need from one another on the journey. Somebody who is willing to come alongside of you when you are in the wrong and say, hey friend, This isn't right. This isn't who you were called to be. This isn't what Jesus has set us free to do or or be about. Let's get back on the path together. And the beautiful thing is that in Matthew 7, Jesus helps paint a picture for us of what good judgment looks like, of what it looks like to exercise good judgment in someone's life. And so what I want to do is run through the rest of what he says here in the first part of Matthew 7 to help us understand how to do this right. Because if we do this wrong, we're going to do great damage in our relationships to one another. But if we learn how to do this right, we're going to help one another on the journey that we're all on together. And so if we're going to learn how to exercise good judgment according to what Jesus is saying here, here's some things that we need to know. Here would be the first thing. If you're going to exercise good judgment, it's going to require this. Judging correctly. Judging correctly. This is what he's just said in verse 1. Do not judge or you will be judged. What we've already been talking about, the distinction between good judging and bad judging. You and I need to learn how to exercise good judgment, which means we need to learn to judge correctly. Here's what I love about Jesus, is that not only does he teach us how to live the life 
that we are created to live, to live the life that he has set us free to live by his death for us on the cross. He models it for us as well. If you ever wonder, how am I to live now that I've been set free by God's grace on my life? We look to Jesus and we ask, help me to be like that. Because Jesus models for us beautifully what it looks like to judge correctly. There's a story that we're told in John chapter 8. A time when the religious leaders were trying to set Jesus up because they did not like him. They were threatened by him. He was becoming popular. He was confronting them. He was a threat to their position, their power, their prestige. And so they wanted to set him up. And so on this day, they come and find Jesus and they grab a woman that they had caught in the act of adultery and they drag her through the streets and throw her at Jesus' feet. Familiar with this story? Yeah. Now you've got to imagine for this woman, this has got to be a really, really bad day. Because you're caught in the secret affair you've been having. And all of a sudden, these angry men barge in, drag you from the bed, drag you through the streets, and throw you at the feet of Jesus. Imagine what you're feeling if you're her. And I, I got to wonder if she's saying, where's the dude? Like, why, why just me? And we don't know why, but apparently these men thought it was just better to grab the woman and not the guy. And so they bring her there and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they say to Jesus... Jesus, the law of Moses says that anyone who is caught committing adultery needs to be stoned to death. So what do you say we do with her? And they're trying to set Jesus up. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about the law of Moses. They're just trying to get Jesus in trouble. Because they've tried to give him an impossible dilemma. On one hand, if Jesus doesn't doesn't back up the law of Moses, if Jesus shows the compassion and the mercy that he's becoming famous for, then they can write him off as a false prophet. Oh, you don't back up what the law of Moses says, and they can just smear his name throughout the streets and say he's not a real prophet. Yeah, he likes to feed people and creates a lot of food for people, but he's not really a prophet. He doesn't support the teaching in the law of Moses. So that's the one dilemma. But now if Jesus does back up the law of Moses and say, yeah, that's what it says, that's what we're supposed to do, not only will he lose popularity with the people, not that Jesus really cared about being popular, he cared about doing what his father wanted him to do, but he'd lose popularity with the people, he'd also get in trouble with Rome. Because at this point in history, Rome is the governing authority over the Jewish people. They're the only ones who have the right to execute anyone. And so if Jesus agrees with them in this moment, they can go running off to Roman soldiers or whoever and say, hey, Jesus is leading a rebellion. He's trying to take the law into his own hands. So see how they're trying to set him up? They're creating an impossible dilemma. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He's so much smarter than these idiot men on this day. I don't know, have you ever tried to create a dilemma for Jesus in your own life? Have you ever figured out it doesn't work too well? Well, Jesus, I'll follow you if, feel like if you do this, 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 and Jesus is like, no, it's my terms, not yours. So here's how Jesus responds to the dilemma they put before him. He stoops down and starts doodling in the sand. I love that. I love that. Because here come these angry men all in a huff and puff. And Jesus, what do you do? And Jesus just kind of ignores them and goes down and doodles in the sand. And we have no idea what he's doodling in the sand. People will speculate. Some people say that he's actually writing down the name of men in that group who've actually had an affair with this woman. We don't know. That's some, some would speculate. Others would speculate that what he's writing in the sand are a list of sins that he knows these guys are all guilty of. Again, we don't know. He could be playing tic-tac-toe for all we know. <laughs> But in that moment, he responds in a way that catches them off guard, and they don't know what to do with it. 
And so they kind of keep pressing him, Jesus, what are we supposed to do? And then Jesus stands up and confronts them and says this, I'll tell you what, any of you that are without sin, be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back to his game of (laughs) tic-tac-toe. And they don't know what to do with this. But we're told in the story in John 8 that one by one, these angry men begin to peel off from the crowd, starting with the oldest first, because they'd lived long enough to know that they had sin in their lives. And finally, it's just Jesus and this woman. And he looks at her and he says, women, where are those who would condemn you? And she says, they've gone. And then Jesus looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. And this is where a lot of people like to stop the story. Because a lot of people like to say, see, see, he didn't condemn her. He doesn't do, he doesn't confront her. He doesn't do anything. Like, no, no, no. Jesus goes on to say, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And this is a beautiful story that illustrates what judging correctly looks like. Because he doesn't condemn, but he does confront. And that's what we're called to do in our relationships with one another. Hey man, this is wrong. Don't judge me. I'm not condemning you. But I'm confronting you about this issue. And I care enough to speak truth and love into your life. We need to learn how to judge correctly in our relationships with one another. But Jesus goes on in Matthew 7 and helps us understand more of what this looks like. If we're going to exercise good judgment, it requires not just judging correctly, it requires judging carefully. Because look at what he says in verse 2. He says, For in the same way you judge others, you will be, what? Judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so what Jesus is saying is, be careful, friends. Be very careful how you do this. Because how you go about confronting someone who has messed up is how you, in turn, will be confronted when you have messed up. And so a lot of us stop and go, I'm not confronting anyone. (laughs) Because I don't want to be confronted in my life. And that's not an option because all of us need to be confronted at times in our life. I am in desperate need of God's correction in my life. When I get off the path, when I blow them off, when I do my own thing, whether it's a big flagrant thing or just stupid little things that take me off the path, I need God to show up and lovingly correct me and discipline me back onto the path he set me free to live. You need that too. And we need our help from one another to do that. But what Jesus is saying is be careful how you do that because how you do that shows God how you want him to do it for you when it's your turn. And so when you fly off the handle at someone, when you throw them under the bus, when you attack them, when you malign their character, when you cross the line between confronting and you start to condemn, what Jesus is saying is, you're telling God, hey God, see how I'm doing it? When it's my turn, would you do the same thing to me, please? I don't know about you, but when it's my turn, I want a God who is merciful and kind, and in that kindness leads me back to repentance. And so here's a great guideline for when it's time to do that for a friend. Love your neighbor as yourself. If the roles were reversed and that person needed to come to you and confront you about some issue in your life, how would you want them to do it? Then do the same for them. But if we're going to exercise good judgment in our relationships with one another, 
We need to judge carefully. And Jesus goes on to help us understand how to do this because the next thing that we need to understand that he's going to point out here is that if we're going to exercise good judgment, it's going to require not just judging correctly, not just judging carefully, it's going to require judging consistently. Because Jesus now uses an analogy to help us understand what he's talking about. In verse 3 he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. And so in this analogy, he's talking about issues in our life, sin in our life. And he's using the analogy of having something stuck in our eye to represent a sin or an issue in your life. Have you ever had something stuck in your eye? It's really annoying, isn't it? And so what he's saying is, look, all of us or all of you will have something, an issue in your life that's going on. But here's what you need to understand You have issues just as much as that person has issues. And the ridiculous thing is that your issue may actually be bigger than their issue, but you don't even see it sometimes. And you're going around life with this thing sticking out of your face, pointing out little specks in everyone else's eye. And I don't know, maybe it's in your blind spot, but for whatever reason, you don't see it. And what Jesus says is you've got to deal with that because look at what he says in verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Sounds like he's making a judgment. <laughs> First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And if we're going to exercise good judgment, this means that we have to learn how to judge consistently. Which means that I have to be willing to take the same lens with which I can so easily scrutinize you and turn it back upon myself and say, what are my issues? What are my struggles? What do I have sticking out of my face right now? And Jesus says that when we are more than willing to do that for someone else, but unwilling to do that for ourselves, what does he call us? Hypocrites. And so he says, hey friend, look in the mirror before you look at your friend. Deal with your own issue first. And that doesn't mean that we have to suddenly be perfect before we can go and help someone else, before we can make a good judgment in someone else's life. What it means is that I have to be willing to make that same good judgment in my own life first and begin to deal with the issues in my life and begin to get those planks out of my life. And here's a way that you can do that in your own life. You have to start being radically honest with yourself and with God about your issues and your struggles. You realize you have issues and struggles, right? Yeah? See, I think if you're here and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, it's because you realize that you had issues and struggles and you needed his help. You needed his grace. You needed his forgiveness for your life. And let me tell you, I don't, I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for one day or for most of your life. You need Jesus just as much today as when you first started the journey. Because the more you walk with him, the more he's going to peel back the, 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 the layers of your life and say, now it's time to work on this, and now it's time to work on this. And you and I don't need to hide anything from him. There is never a time where I could discover an issue in my life that I suddenly have to hide from God as if, hey God, I just discovered this plank in my eye. 
And God would say, oh, I didn't see that one. He would say, yes, you're finally seeing it. That's why I sent my son to die to pay the price for that. Now let's get to work. Let's get that thing out of your eyes so you can become the person I set you free to become. And so we be radically honest with God and ourselves. And then we learn to walk in authentic relationship with one another. And so we come into a place like this where we go into our life groups and we no longer pretend that we're perfect and we have it all together. We come into that place saying, I have issues. Yes, I do. I have issues. How about you? (laughs) And we begin to walk together in the freedom he's calling us into. And to say, friend, I need your help. Because there's things that get stuck in my eye and I need you to come to me and help me with that. And I, in turn, will help you with the things that get stuck in your eye. And it's a beautiful thing when a body of Christ comes together And we no longer have to pretend we have it all together, but we recognize that we're messed up. That's why we need Jesus. So let's do life together the best we know how. And I can come before my friends and say, this is who I am. Here's my issues, my struggles. Help me. And I commit to helping you. Because that's the goal in exercising good judgment. Because the end result of doing this The last thing to understand about exercising good judgment is this, is that good judgment requires judging to restore. Because notice what he says. Get the plank out of your eye so that you can then see clearly to look to your brother and help him get the speck out of his eye. The goal is not to get the plank out of your eye so you can become a self-righteous hypocrite and gouge out your brother's eye. The goal is to get the planks out of your eye so that you can then turn to your brother or your sister and say, let me help you. I know what it's like to struggle. I know what it's like to have issues. Let me walk with you. This may not be my issue. This may not be my struggle, but let me tell you, I've been there in my own life with my own stuff. And he's helping to free me, so let me help you Discover the freedom he has for you. And we respond in the body together as we do life together. I remember in my own journey, 18 years ago, I'm a, I'm a young man, I'm 20 years old. And you know when you're 20, you're in that weird state between adolescence and adulthood, and our culture is really screwed up on where that happens. And so you're just kind of like, am I a man or am I a boy? I don't know. What, what does this happen, Right? And you're trying to figure out who you are. And so much of that is your identity is wrapped up in trying to be someone. And and so for me, uh, by personality, I'm very awkward, introverted, shy kind of a person. And yet I discovered early on that I could be witty and funny. And so as I'm trying to discover who I am as a person, my identity, I began to realize that with my circle of friends, I can be the funny one. And that's who I'll be. Except the problem with my humor at 20 years old is that it was anything but good. My humor brought in every sexual innuendo that you could imagine. And sometimes I'd bring your mother into the equation too to get a laugh. And so my my humor was crude, it was crass, it was cruel because sometimes it was at your expense in order to get a laugh from everyone else. And yet this is who I was discovering who I was. So I thought, yay, I'm funny, I'm the funny one. (laughs) So I remember one night hanging out with my group of friends being especially funny. 
This is one of those nights where I'm just on. Like my wit is just going boom, 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 boom. Like I threw your mother under the bus and all that. You know, just everything. And everyone's laughing. A few people are crying, but for the most part, we're having fun. <laughs> and I remember we're leaving and I'm walking out to the parking lot. And one of my older friends had been hanging out with us that night. A guy about eight years older than me. A guy who had actually been a mentor in my life through my teenage years. And he follows me out into the parking lot and he says, hey, Joel, can I talk to you for a minute? And I turn, and I'm expecting him to come to me and say, I love how funny you are. In fact, I think you're so funny. I want to start hanging out with you because that's how cool I think you are. That's what I'm expecting to hear. Instead, he calls me to the mat. And he says, hey, I want you to know that your humor is out of line. When you look at who you and I are called to be as followers of Christ, and the way we're supposed to use our words to honor him and honor people, the way you've been using your humor is wrong. And I just need to challenge you on that. And he said, I'm not telling you not to be funny. I'm just telling you don't be funny like that because that's not who God called you to be. And I was offended. I was hurt. I was angry. I bit my tongue because the first thing I wanted to say to him was, judge not lest you be judged. And yet he wasn't condemning me. He was confronting me on an issue in my life. And underneath my anger and my frustration, I knew he was right. And so I had to make a decision with what my friend was pointing out was sticking out of my face in that moment. Let me tell you, it was hard to learn how to not be funny when so much of my identity was wrapped up in that. And yet what I had to learn was who I was in Christ, not who I wanted to be in my own terms. I used to be funny. (laughs) But I had a friend who cared enough to get in my face and speak truth into my life. And at 20 years old, I think he helped set the course for my life as God used him to confront me on something. And I wrestle with my humor still to this day. I mean, there's times where I'm biting my tongue. I'm like, it's so easy. Just don't say that. Don't let that out. But God has freed me from this issue, and he's showing me who he wants me to be, the man that he's saved me to be, the man he's leading me to become. And that's why we need to get this right. Because when we get this right, we help one another on the journey, get the stuff out of our eyes. But when we get this wrong, we do incredible damage on the journey. Because I don't know if you've ever been condemned by someone. You've heard them talking about you, what they've said about you. It's devastating. It crushes you. It makes you want to pull away from the body of Christ, not be a part of it. And this is exactly why James is confronting the first Christians about the way they were talking about one another. And so in light of everything that we've just seen Jesus spelling out for us here in James chapter 1, or in uh, Matthew chapter 7, I want you to rethink everything we just read in James 4. See that James is confronting the Christians. Do you understand what James is doing now? He's exercising good judgment by confronting them on an issue in their life in order to help them understand who they were meant to be in Christ. Don't do this, it's destructive. And so in pointing out that their slander is actually bad judgment, James is exercising good judgment. 
And we read his words almost 2,000 years later, and they still have relevance for our life today. Because I don't know about you, but this is something I struggle with, and I need to be confronted with this in my own life. And so let's reread his words together here. James chapter 4, verse 11. Brothers, do not slander one another. See, he's confronting the sin without condemning them. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. When you slander your brother or sister, you're taking God's place and you're acting like you're God judging them and you're judging his law because you are no longer loving your neighbor as yourself. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you Who are you to judge your neighbor? And like I said at the front end of our time together, this is an excellent question to wrestle with. And so let me ask you a question. Reflect on your words this past week. Reflect on the things that you've said about people or against people. And let me ask you this question. What do your words reveal about who you think you are? As you think about the things you've said about other people. What do those words reveal about who you think you are? This is what James is trying to help us understand. Don't forget who you are. Because as you and I begin to wrestle with that question we actually begin to understand what the solution to slander and judgment is. Here's the solution to slander and judgment in your life. Remember who you are in light of who he is. When you remember who you are in light of who he is, it suddenly begins to set you free from the need and the desire to slander and judge others because you realize this is not who you've been called to be anymore. So remember what I said at the start of our talk, a couple reasons why we slander people. One of the reasons why we slander people is to get even with them, to hurt them the way they've hurt us. Another reason why we slander people is to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, to lift ourselves up. And yet the more you begin to understand who you are in light of who he is, the more you're set free from that. Here's what I mean. Let me tell you who you are in light of who he is. You are a person like me who is seriously messed up. According to what God has told us on the pages of this book, you and I have committed crimes against the king of the universe. We have rebelled against the creator, the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty. And we stand guilty before him. And he has us dead to rights for the things that we have done. And yet this God, who has every right to get even with us, has chosen to love us instead. He's chosen to pour out his grace upon us by sending Jesus to come to this place on our behalf and to show us how to live the life we've been set free. And then he goes to the cross, and he pays the price for all crimes committed against God. 
And on that cross, he pays the price for your failure, for my failure. On the cross, he wipes out our spiritual debt. And he gives us his goodness. He deposits that on our behalf. And so God looks at us and says, I have every right to get even with you, but I choose to love you instead. Let me wipe out your debt and let, you, let me give you my son's righteousness instead and teach you how to live a new kind of life. And when you and I begin to remember who we are now in light of who he is, I don't need to slander and judge people who have wronged me and hurt me in order to get even anymore because my life is no longer about being even. My life is about experiencing his grace poured out for me and living in that grace and in that forgiveness and saying, God, thank you that you had every right to do with me as you saw fit, but you chose to love me anyways. Now teach me to do the same for others. Teach me to give the grace that you've given me to those who have wronged me so that I don't need to slander them or judge them anymore. Because when you remember who you are in light of who he is, it begins to set you free from the need to slander and judge others. Let me tell you who you are in light of who he is. You are somebody who is deeply, fiercely, madly loved by God. That he took you when you were his enemy. And the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till he thought you were good enough. He took you at your worst and he lifted you up out of the muck and mire of your fallen life. And says, let me love you and pour my grace upon you. And now he calls you son or daughter. And he lifts you up into the life you were created to live. And when you remember who you are in light of who he is, you don't need to slander anyone anymore. Because I don't need to put anyone down in order to be lifted up because I've already been lifted up by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he loves me and I don't get it because I don't deserve it. And he says, that's the point. It's not about you anymore. Men and women, we need to remember who we are in light of who he is so that we don't make the mistake that James is confronting us about. And if you want to experience the freedom from that, from playing the game of slander and judgment and taking God's role in someone else's life, then you need to remember who you are in light of who he is and let him set you free. And so as we continue in our time together, we're going to go into a time of worship right now. And as we do this, the ushers are going to come forward to collect our gifts and our offerings. And as we do this, I want to invite you to go into this time of worship reflecting on this question. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are today as you come into this place? And if you need help remembering that I want to invite you in this time of worship to go before him and say, God, would you show me who I am in light of who you are? And in this moment, as we come into his presence together to worship him, to declare his greatness, understand that the more you see him, the more clearly you see him, the more clearly you begin to understand who you are in light of that. And so as we go into this time, if you want to spend your time sitting and reflecting on this question, if you want to enter in and stand and worship and sing with the worship team, feel free. 
But let's spend our time together in this moment going before him and saying, God, help me to see who I am in light of who you are. Let's pray into this time. Father, we come into your presence right now, and God, we are in desperate need of reminding. (laughs) Because, God, it's so easy in our journey to forget what you've done for us. To focus on the wrong things, to focus on the wrong person, the wrong people, and God, to look at others and to condemn them, to judge them, to slander them with our words. And so here in this place, we come into your presence and God, Help us realize who we are in light of who you are. Help us to use our words to build up others and to worship you and not to play God. For there is no one like you. You are the only lawgiver and judge. And we are grateful that you've poured out your grace upon us. We have no no, we have nothing about ourselves that deserves that. God, we know what we deserve, and thank you for not giving us that. Instead, thank you for loving us and freeing us. Amen. I pray that you don't forget that, <laughs> that you can remember that every day you follow after him, because the sad thing is that when we forget that, We start to think we're so great outside of who he is. And yet, however great we think we are, if it's outside of who he is, it's just a pathetic caricature of the greatness he wants to lead us into. And so his love for us overwhelms us and reminds us of who we are in light of who he is. Because what God wants is for you to get over yourself and become the man or the woman he's freeing you to become. And so as you go out this week, remember who you are and use the words that God has given you to build people up, not to tear them down. And so get over yourself this week. Walk with him and follow him. If you're here this morning and and you'd like someone to pray with you and process with you in the back of the room over here, we'd have some people that would love to minister to you in that way. So feel free to make your way over there after the service. Next week, Mike will be back with us. We'll be continuing in this book in James, learning more and more what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so my prayer is that as a church, we continue to experience him unleashing us to be his movement in this world. And we can share that story with the people around us. God bless you. We'll see you then. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. <laughs>